Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible passage. Why don't we pray as we turn to God's Word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that we open the Bible and hear from you. Lord, we pray right now that you would open our hearts, that our minds would be attentive, that we'd be ready to receive a word from you, that everyone in the room today would hear your voice speaking to them, that you'd speak to them. Lord, we, we recognize that we all need a fresh word from you. May I, may I preach faithfully? May I be faithful to you in this? In Jesus' name, amen. Experienced a great reversal. A great reversal. Have you ever experienced a great reversal? Um, the first uh, picture I'm going to put up on the screen is of a great reversal that happened this week. I don't know if you saw this news story. Um, yeah, you, you might have seen it. So the guy on the right uh, this was at the Asian Games men's speed skating 3,000 meter relay final. And the guy on the right is South Korea's Jung Chul Won. And he prematurely celebrates as he crosses the finish line. Wang um, Yu um, Lin stretches forward and wins the race. Um, you can see. So the guy on the, on the right is going, Yeah, I won! But he's, he's forward and wins. Too early. And the guy on our left just stretches his leg forward and wins by a split second. Literally, um, I think it was a hundredth of a second that he won by. So that was a great reversal. And this was a relay. So the, um, the poor Korean guy on the right, like they would have won uh, to the other members of his team, to his whole nation. I mean, like they would have won. Uh, and he's, yeah. So in the moment, that was a bit of an unfortunate reversal. Last week... Hey, what a reversal, right? Sorry to any Broncos fans. Um, it was 8-24. So the, the Panthers had eight points. The Broncos had 24 points until the 62nd minute. And then it all reversed in favor of the mighty Panthers. So I'm not, I'm not a super Panthers fan, but I, I certainly am not a Broncos fan. So, so I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the game. But everybody loves a cliffhanger, don't they? I mean, I think even for the Broncos fans... I know there are some among us. I think it was still a fun game to watch. Is that right? It was still a fun game to watch because a great reversal happens, and it's interesting, right? It's an, it's an interesting phenomenon um, to see happening before you. They're the fun games to watch, right? The boring games where you know who's going to win from the first minute, and then you already just turn off the TV. Well, the focus of our passage today is the God of reversals. Uh, I said last Sunday that chapter 4 involves a great pivot in Esther's life. So Esther went through a great shift as her, uh, as her character changed, as she made a decision that, no, I am going to risk my life. I'm going to go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. So that was the great pivot moment in Esther's life in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. But now we're in chapter 6 of the book of Esther, and this is where the whole story pivots. This is where the whole story hangs. You can actually look at the structure of the book of Esther as a great big V. It kind of gets worse and worse and worse and worse until a certain point, and then it gets better and better and better and better. And it's like this great big V that's like there's, there's this kind of equal structure on one side and the other side, and then there's this moment where this incredible reversal takes place in the story. And that's what we're reading about today. It's the moment when the turns um, and... Uh, that is the hinge on which the whole book of Esther turns. Um, and uh, you can see that if you look at the story as a whole. Just recapping a little bit for us. So the book of Esther is about this, 
this young lady called Esther who grew up in the Persian Empire. Her great-grandparents' generation was deported forcibly from Israel to modern-day Iran. Um, she was growing up uh, being looked after by her cousin Mordecai. And then <clears throat> the king of Persia, who's King Xerxes, he, uh, he, had this, he, he um, divorced his wife Vashti. Then he had this sexualized beauty pageant. Esther was chosen to be his new wife. And then at that moment, um, you think that's the, where the Cinderella story ends, but the real, the real story begins, uh, where um, King uh, Xerxes has, uh, elevates this guy called Haman to be like his uh, royal vizier, his um, prime minister. Haman then plots to kill all of the Jews. Uh, King Xerxes agrees to the plot, not even knowing who is going to be killed. Um, and then Mordecai comes to Esther. He says, hey, you need to go into the king. You need to stop this. She agrees to do it. She says, fast for me for three days, and then I'll go into the king. What she then first does is, and Haman, who's this bad guy, is plotting to kill her entire people group. And she's, but Esther doesn't tell the king about Haman's plot. It's like she's sort of waiting for a sign, is that you come tomorrow. She doesn't, she doesn't say, hey, there's this plot. She says, my request is that you come tomorrow to another banquet, and there I'll tell you what it is that's really going on. There I'll tell you what I really need from you. And he says, okay. And then this moment is what happens between that first banquet and the second banquet. The king can't sleep. And then he gets the annals to be read to him. This is, by the way, a really, uh, you know, a good strategy to try to fall asleep is to listen to something read to you that's quite boring. Um, some people listen to audiobooks. Some people listen to interesting audiobooks. Don't do that. That's not what the king's doing. Listen to boring, boring audiobooks, and then you might be able to fall back asleep. That's the strategy of the king. So the king gets the, he gets the annals read to him. He hears about Mordecai. Uh, here's how Mordecai had stopped an assassination plot against him. He says, whoa, hang on a second. How have we honored him? We haven't honored him. Haman comes in. He gets Haman to parade Mordecai around the city. Haman's really ashamed. And then the next moment on is the banquet that Esther says to the king, hey, this Haman, he's a bad guy. He's trying to kill my people group. The king gets really angry. He storms out of the room. Haman then falls on Esther and is pleading for his life while she's lying on the couch. Totally inappropriate. The king walks in and says, are you also going to molest the queen while I'm in the room? And then that's when the servants of the king go, all right, I think we know what's going on here. And they cover Haman's face, which means they realize the king, needs, the king wants Haman to be executed. They decide to execute Haman on the same pole that he had built for the execution of Mordecai. So it's this great reversal. And then um, Esther asks the king, hey, can we get a new edict from you so that the, the, the Jews' enemies don't kill the Jews, but the Jews are able to kill their enemies? And the king says, sure. And then chapter 9 has this great war where the Jews of the Persian Empire are able to uh, kill those who were planning on killing them. 75,000 people die. And, uh, and then there's this great uh, celebration at the end of the book. So it's a book of a huge reversal. Everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then the king can't sleep and better and better. And, and then something changes, something shifts, and everything gets better and better and better and better and better. And there is salvation. And so it's a, it's a, it's a book where we see the God of reversals. We see how God loves a reversal, a good upset. 
a good shift, a good breakthrough. King David calls, calls God the Lord of the breakthrough. And that's what this story is about, and that's the moment that we're looking at. Psalm 30, uh, verse 11 and 12 says this, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. That's Psalm 30. You turned my wailing into dancing. You took off my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy. Or in the book of Esther, we see this verse in in chapter 9. Their sorrow was turned into joy. Could you repeat that after me? I'll say it again, then you say it. Their sorrow was turned into joy. Just want to get that really joy and their mourning. This is what our God is like. Their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Right? He's the God of reversals. And so I want to look at this passage and think a little bit more deeply about that. What does it mean that our God is the God of reversal? Our God is the God, the Lord of the breakthrough. What does that look like in our passage? Well, the first thing I want to say is uh, I want to talk about the God of reversals and the power of prayer. I just want to ask the really simple question, why couldn't the king sleep? Why couldn't the king sleep? And then he listened to the annals being read and he realized he hadn't honored Mordecai. And then this great pivot happens in the story. Why couldn't the king sleep? The earliest commentators on this passage actually tell us, they say, the Lord took away the sleep from the king. Um, the, the, even the, the earliest translations of Esther involve people putting the name of God back into the story. Because the, the unique feature of the book of Esther that I mentioned before is that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. It's like this beautiful statement to us that God is happy to work behind the scenes and not even be noticed. And he's everywhere present but nowhere named. But then the earliest, he did not allow. The readers of the book of Esther say, no, this is definitely the Lord doing this. He did not allow the king to sleep. It's a a beautiful reminder, right, to all the places where you and I don't have access, right? So we can pray right now for a president of another country. We can pray right now for the prime minister of our country. And God is present right there where that president is or where that prime minister is. And he's listening to us and he's powerful to act in the bedroom of the king. Right? This is a, a powerful reminder to us of the power of prayer. We believe in a God of reversals, and we believe in the power of prayer. And so I, I want you to realize that prayer gives you access everywhere. Prayer gives you access everywhere. If you're a person of prayer, you can shift the course of history. We don't know if you will. We don't know how much we will. There's this great uh, statement I read once, and it said that uh, only in eternity will we be aware of the power of our prayers. Because if you pray for, hey, you prayed, and this is what I've decided to do, you know, that doesn't happen, right? But, but when we pray, stuff changes. God answers our prayers. And so only in eternity will we realize the power of our prayer. It gives us access. I remember once uh, when I was studying in uh, St. Petersburg State University, and I learned about how important access was. If you really wanted something done, you had to go to the dean of the faculty. And I went one day to the dean of the faculty, and I I saw there were some students standing outside his office. 
And I asked them, why are you standing outside? And they said, oh, they, they were foreigners. They, they, they didn't really know how it worked in Russia. And I said, why are you standing outside? And they said, oh, this is where you stand. This is where you line up if you want to see the dean. And I said, have you gone in? Have you opened the door and walked in? They said, no, 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 no. We wouldn't do that. You need to stand here and wait. And I said, no, no, no. You need to just open the door and walk in. They're like, he's got like secretaries all around. You, you go just wait there. You sort of make yourself known and you, you get in the way. And then, and then someone will answer what you need. And, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. And I said, okay. I'll see you later then. And I just walked past them and went in the room. And uh, there was a secretary there waiting, and I sort of barged in and made my request known. And the secretary got me in touch with the dean, and then we solved the problem, and it was quite quick. And then I walked out, and they were still standing there, waiting in line. And I said, that's how you do it. You just have to walk in. And they kind of looked at me, and it was like they were both a little bit jealous of me, you know, of my boldness. <laughs> A little bit annoyed that I'd skip the queue, but I didn't think I skipped the queue. I just think they didn't understand how the queue worked. You know, there was, uh, you, you have to boldly approach in, uh, in, in an environment like that. In a bureaucratic environment, you, you can't wait in line. You've got, to, you've got to boldly approach. That's how it works. I, I say that a little bit to express how in prayer we have access and you need to boldly approach. The scriptures say, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. I don't want to be standing outside the office wondering if God will ever bring about a change in my life. I want to understand the access we have, and I want to boldly approach the throne of grace, and I want to know that as I have access to the throne room of the King of Kings, He has access to change anything in this world. And that, friends, is the power of prayer. That's the power of prayer. I love how it's just not just that God changes it, but that the king couldn't sleep. The king couldn't sleep. It's like this reminder. It's a way that when we pray, we pray to a God who isn't asleep. We pray to a God who is awake to our needs. And it's like God saying, you know, these people are praying. They were praying for three days. They were fasting and praying. Who does all of the Jews in Susa? And it's like God saying, okay, they're, they're praying to me who doesn't sleep. And the one who makes the decision to save their lives is this king. And so I'm going to make him not sleep as well. It's like this, God's just passing on this, this unsleepingness to this king to wake him up and make him understand what's going on and save his people. It's a beautiful picture of the power of prayer. And it's a reminder of the access we have as we walk into the throne room and make our requests known to the king of kings. And he has access everywhere. A key point here is that Mordecai should have been honored. I've mentioned that before. And so the king wakes up, he, he, he hears these annals read, and he says, why haven't we honored Mordecai? And that's when everything starts to change. I remember when we were fleeing Russia uh, after the war started, and we had to get out quickly, and we were stuck in Seoul Airport for 24 hours and 15 minutes. You're only meant to be in, in, in an international airport for 24 hours maximum. Being vaccinated from COVID 15 minutes because we couldn't get on a plane. Because we, we hadn't been vaccinated from COVID because we were in Russia and we didn't want to take the, the Russian vaccine. And, you know, so, and the first one they said, they're in Seoul Airport. And like, we had two sets of international tickets from Seoul to Sydney. And the first one they said, no, you can't get on the plane because you're not vaccinated. And so we're stuck in Seoul Airport, stuck in this airport. It was late. They said, no, you can't get on the plane because you're not vaccinated. And we were like, in, we we're just stuck in this airport. It was Layla's birthday. And, uh, and we were just walking around this airport. Joshi was in pain. And it was this miserable time for us, um, miserable time. And I remember this moment when the airlines were calling up the Australian government 
And I remember this moment when we were expecting maybe we'll get our boarding passes in half an hour. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll happen. And I remember this moment just walking and praying and singing and praying and just walking back and forth in this airport. And it was like something shifted for me where I realized that ultimately, in order to get these boarding passes, all I need to do is access the throne of grace. Because I have access to God who can change all things. And so it was this this place and aware of the access I had to him. And it was like something shifted in me. And I realized, no, we've we've already got the boarding passes. We're already there. I already already had a sense of victory. This this prayer answered. And then went back to the counter and they said, here are your boarding passes. Friends, we have access. We, We believe in a God of reversals and we believe in the power of prayer. Second thing I want to say is uh, the downfall of the wicked. We believe in a God of reversals and the downfall of the wicked. You see the irony and the black humor in this chapter, right? If you want to know like God's sense of humor, you look at chapter six of the book of Esther. Haman walks in bright and early to the king's palace. And he's, he's there, he's early. The, the Bible talks about the wicked whose feet are swift to shed blood. That's Haman. He's bright and early, ready to kill somebody. That's, who he's, that's what he's like. And he gets into the king's palace. And then the king says to him, Haman, oh, I need your advice. What should I do for the person I want to honor more than anyone else? And then you see Haman thinking, who would the king want to honor more than me? It's like he's bright and early, ready to kill people, seek his own glory. You know, he's just prideful, arrogant. He thinks that everything's, you know, he's going to get everything he wants. He's just this, this perfect depiction of the wicked person. And he gets there and he says, oh, I know what you should do, king. Uh, you should give him your robe. Let him wear the king's clothes, which was a total no-no. Nobody ever wore the king's clothes. Can you imagine that? It's like saying, you know, to King Charles... Why don't you let me wear the crown that you like do your coronation in? Just let me wear that. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? It's like that, like even saying that would you know should get you in a whole lot of trouble. So Haman says, you should let him wear the king's clothes. It's like it's audacious. And then he says, and let him ride on the king's horse. Now the king's horse was like the king's throne. That the king's horse was considered to be an extension of the throne. He's, he's saying, let him wear the crown and let him sit on the throne. That would be pretty cool. You know, that's what he's thinking about this about himself. He's thinking, I want to be king. I want to go right to the top. Being second isn't good enough for me. Being the two I see of the whole Persian empire is not enough. I want to be the one I see. <laughs> I want to be in charge. I want to be the king. Early commentators, when they read this, you know, maybe that's why he was so obsessed was behind the assassination plot in chapter 2. You know, maybe that's why he was so upset with Mordecai and Mordecai was, wouldn't bow down to him. Maybe Haman was the bad guy behind Big Thana and Teresh. We don't know for sure, but he certainly wants to be king. You see that for, he, for the one he delights to. Raid him around the whole city and say, this is what the king does for, he, for the one he delights to honor. Haman's saying, that's what I want. I just want to be king. And then the king says, quick, go and do that for Mordecai the Jew. Quick. And I love the word quick there as well. There's this, there's this theme in Haman's life where he's rushing around to get honor for himself. He's rushing here and he's rushing there to do wicked things and to seek his own glory. And the king says, quick, go and do that for Mordecai. Hey, rush, go quickly, haste, you know, go and do that. 
for Mordecai the Jew. And, and the, the, the irony here is the king doesn't know that Haman hates Mordecai. But everybody else knows that. Everybody in the king's court knows that. Everybody in the city knows that Haman hates Mordecai. And so Haman now has to walk around uh, holding this horse, the king's horse, while Mordecai is dressed in the king's robes. He looks, I mean, it's like he's flying in Air Force One, you know, or he's driving in the Popemobile. Like, this is the sort of, you know, picture that we got, right? Like, like Mordecai is like, looks like the king, and Haman has to shout around to all these people who know how much he hates Mordecai. Hey, this is what the king does, for the one he loves to honor. And you just, like, this, this, it's such a humorous picture of the downfall of the wicked. And then ultimately, a chapter later, Haman gets killed on the pole that he has built for Mordecai. Friends, this is a lesson about what to do when the wicked prosper. When the wicked prosper. Haman is a wicked person who had up to this point been prospering. Psalm 73 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped when I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalm, psalm 73 is such a beautiful psalm. It talks about how I looked at the wicked person and I saw them prospering and I started to be jealous of them. But then it says in verse 17 of that psalm, until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end. The idea in the psalm is that when, when the psalmist went into the sanctuary, went into the temple, that in the presence of God, that's where he understood that, no, the wicked have a downfall coming for them. And the same is true today. The wicked have a downfall that's coming for them. The downfall of the wicked. And so what do we do when the wicked prosper? We wait, proud, but gives grace to the humble. Haman expects, he's rushing the key attitude of the biblical fool. He wants to be king. He's rushing to, to do wicked. He's prospering and Mordecai. And then there's the big upset, the great reversal. In my life, I tried to think, what, where's, what's an example of the downfall of the wicked? And uh, I could think of one example where I was the wicked guy. It's not a massive downfall. I was fishing in Finland on the lake, and I was um, at his summer, summer house, beautiful location on the lake, and I was fishing. And, and someone had told me, when you're fishing in Finland, you catch a fish like that. And so I was so expectant to catch a fish like that. And I'd been fishing all morning. I'd, well, not all morning, maybe 45 minutes. That felt like all morning to me. And I'd been fishing and I hadn't caught anything. Anyway, some family friends came over. They came over in a boat. And, and uh, this guy uh, gets out of the boat, Finnish guy. And uh, he's a relative of, of um, the family. And, uh, and he goes, oh, you're fishing. Oh, let me fish with you. And he picks up another fishing rod and he throws it in the water. And on his first pull, as he's pulling it back, the rod goes sharp and he's like, you know, pulling, pulling. And all the people standing around are saying, fish, 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 in Finnish, which is kala, 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 kala. That's how you say fish in Finnish. I never thought you'd learn that this morning. 
And uh, they're all going, Kala, Kala. And he pulls in this, and it's quite a large fish. And he goes, ha, ha, and takes off the, the hook and hands it to his wife. And then he does it again, throws it in. And on the second pull, he gets another fish. Everyone's shouting, Kala, 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 Kala. And I'm just standing there like, I mean, at this. Now, for quite a while. And uh, anyway, so he picks, he picks you know, gets the fish out, pulls it off, hands it to his wife, and puts the rod down. And they say, let's go and have some coffee. And they all walk away to have some coffee. Now, of course, I'm not going to go and have any coffee right now. There's a school of fish. I've been at this for a while. There's a school of fish right there. I'm going to catch a fish. And so I'm still there. And, and then Joe comes up to me. Like, they've already, got, they've already poured the coffee over there. And Joe comes up and says, honey, they've already poured the coffee. Come over. I said, yeah, I'll come in a sec. I'll come in a sec. And I'm, I'm fishing. I'm throwing this rod out. And I'm getting more and more frustrated without me, start without me, and they're over there having coffee and chatting, and I'm, I'm getting more and more frustrated, more and more f- right into the reeds. Can't catch a fish. And then I fling it out once, right into the reeds. And it's in the reeds, and I'm pulling and pulling. You know, sometimes you can get it out from the reeds just by giving it a little shake, and I give it a big shake, and the fishing rod snaps, and then the top of the fishing rod goes, sh- <laughs> the reeds. And so I'm standing with it there with this broken fishing rod. <laughs> and I look over, and they're all finishing up over there with their coffee and biscuits. And I realize, like, they came in a boat. That's the only boat there. I've got to go and ask the guy who caught the two fish if he could get in the boat and go back out and unhook the, the line from the, the reeds. And so I put the fishing rod down. I go over, and I, I apologize to them. And I, I said to um, Joe's stepmom, I said, I'm really sorry I, I broke the rod. And she said, oh, that's okay. It was an old rod. It was my father's rod. <laughs> he passed away, but, you know. And then the guy who caught the two fish gets in the boat and goes and saves my rod, broken rod, from these reeds. And I just stood there, and, and that was the downfall of the wicked. <laughs> when you're winning for yourself and... You know, stuff everyone else, and I'm just trying to get there myself, and I'll get there, and I'll get there, and then, and then everything collapses. Third thing I want to say, we believe in the God of reversals and the power of prayer. We believe in the God of reversals and the downfall of the wicked. We believe in the God of reversals and the elevation of the righteous. Notice that Mordecai hasn't complained about not being honored. He saved the king's life. Historians from around that period tell us that um, there was an example uh, where um, the, the king's brother's life was saved. This same king, King Xerxes. And someone saved his brother's life. And so King Xerxes honored that person. This is a historical example. Honored that person by making that person the governor of Cilicia, which is about 5% of modern-day Turkey. Became the governor of a large area, a large state, one of the 127 provinces that King Xerxes was king over. That's, what, that's how the king rewarded the guy who saved his brother's life, right? So how should he reward the guy who saves his own life, who saves the king's life himself? Well, it would be naturally more than becoming the governor of a region. It would probably be becoming a satrap which was one of 20 or so rulers who ruled over a key area of this massive Persian empire. Basically a king. Basically a king. That's what we would expect 
for the king, Xerxes, to do for Mordecai. But he hadn't done anything. And notice that Mordecai doesn't complain about that. Mordecai is aware that the elevation of the righteous ultimately does not depend on the decisions of human rulers. The elevation of the righteous is a biblical fact. It's a promise of God. It's a truth. And we can rely on God and expect that at some point, if we stay faithful to him, that there will be an experience of the elevation of the righteous. So Mordecai humbly submits to leadership. He faithfully serves. And he's aware that God is working behind the scenes. And then Mordecai is honored by Haman, paraded through the city. And, and what would that do for Mordecai? It would, it would make him the most famous person. I mean, that's, wow. He rode on the king's horse. Wow, he was wearing the king's robe. I mean, that's, that's this guy, Mordecai. It's, it's, like, it's like getting a Victoria Cross or it's, it's the Presidential Medal of Freedom or something. You know, <laughs> it's, it's this incredible honor, even bigger than those things. In, even bigger. It's this incredible honor. And it would have made him the most honored person in the Persian Empire. And so what we see is the elevation of the righteous. Friends, um, I, I want to encourage you. Maybe you're in a similar situation to Mordecai. Maybe you're living faithfully and struggling with the fact that no one is noticing. Maybe you're serving faithfully and you feel like you haven't quite been rewarded for what you've been doing. It might be in your marriage. You've been loving your spouse faithfully. It might be in your work. You've been serving, working faithfully. And you get looked over when it's time for promotion. And I want to say... Believe in the God of reversals who loves to elevate you. Uh, once I was uh, um, walking past the offices of our church. I'd never worked in a church before, but I'd studied at Bible college. And I thought sometime, one day, I'll walk in 2008 church. And I remember walking past the church offices at Northside Baptist Church. This is back in 2008. And I was walking past the offices. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit say, I'm going to elevate you. And it was out of the blue. I, I wasn't expecting elevation. <laughs> it was just out of the blue. And I thought, wow, that's strange. And then that week, uh, the senior pastor called me. First step in me becoming a student pastor at our church. And it was the, the first step in me becoming a, a pastor. Um, and it wasn't massive. Like Being a student pastor is not a great level of elevation. Most people in the church treat you as their student, not as their... And it came about just a few days after I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, I'm going to elevate you. We started to live in Siberia about another time when we'd actually arrived in Russia for the, um, when we started to live in Siberia, about six months in, I was walking past, again, the, uh, an office where uh, the leadership team was meeting, the leadership team of our organization. And again, I, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to elevate you. And it was weird, and I thought, well, okay, that's, that's odd. <laughs> and then that week... A representative of the leadership team gave me a call and said, Hey, Tim, we were discussing at our meeting this week how we want to invite you on to the leadership team. And so then I, I joined that leadership team, became a member of the leadership team. And it turns out that they were actually discussing that right when I was walking past and heard the Holy Spirit say, I'm going to elevate you. Now, being the leadership team in a mission organization or being a student pastor, they're not great levels of elevation. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not telling you that so you think, Wow, how amazing is Tim? I'm telling you that so that you're aware of of just how this has worked in my life. That at different points in our lives, God just lifts us up to the next level. And it's Him. He's doing it. 
It's not us. It's not necessarily the people around us. It's God saying, I, I want to elevate this person. I want to lift them up. And so, friends, I want to encourage you. We believe in the God of reversals. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the downfall of the wicked. We believe in the elevation of the righteous. And I want to encourage you to be faithful through all these things. We believe in a God who turns the tables, who changes the stakes, who reverses the narrative, who upends the story. We believe in the Lord of the breakthrough. We believe in the God of reversals. And that's ultimately happened in the gospel, hasn't it? That we deserved condemnation from God. We deserved death. And Jesus came and he died on the cross for us. And he turned our mourning into dancing. He turned our sorrow into joy. In place of condemnation, he offers us his forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. Can you believe that? All of your sins. I was just at a um, 20-year high school reunion last night. And I was made aware of more of my sins. (laughs) As people kept telling me, I remember when you did this. I remember when you did that. And I was thinking, I don't remember those things. But gee, I'm a sinner. Gee, I'm pretty bad. And I was able to share my testimony with them, but I was made aware of my sins again, that I deserve condemnation. They were were offering me condemnation last night. And I had to apologize a few times. And the gospel involves a great reversal where we are offered absolute redemption, complete forgiveness. The God who turns our mourning into joy. And so this is what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. We thank you for this wonderful story uh, of um, redemption, of reversal of you working behind the scenes. We recognize, Lord, that you're working behind the scenes in our lives. We recognize that you're at work bringing about reversal, bringing about change, fulfilling your purposes. Lord, we, trust, we entrust ourselves again to you. We entrust ourselves again to you. We ask, Lord, that you would bring about the downfall of the wicked and the elevation of the righteous. We ask, Lord, that you would Enable us to remain faithful to you as we see Mordecai and Esther doing. And Lord, in all of these things, enable us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.